Chapter Two of The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field. Chapter Two Can the Ocean Be Spanned? Mr. Gisborne left Halifax and came to New York in January, 1854. Here he took counsel with his friend Tebbets and others, but they could give him no relief. It was while in this state of suspense that he met at the Astor House Mr. Matthew D. Field, an engineer who had been engaged in building railroads and suspension bridges at the south and west. Mr. Field listened to his story with interest and engaged to speak of it to his brother, Cyrus W. Field. Footnote A. Born November 30, 1819, in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, the son of a congregational minister, of whom three sons are still living, Mr. David Dully Field of New York, Mr. Justice Stephen J. Field of the Supreme Court of the United States, and the writer of the present volume. End footnote. A merchant of New York, who had retired from business the year before, and had spent six months in traveling over the mountains of South America, from which he had lately returned. Accordingly, he introduced the subject, but found his brother disinclined to embark in any new undertaking. Though still a young man, his life had been for many years one of incessant devotion to business. He had accumulated an ample fortune, and was not disposed to renew the cares, the anxieties, and the fatigues of his former life. But listening to the details of a scheme which had in it much to excite interest, and which by its very difficulty stimulated the spirit of enterprise, he at length consented to see Mr. Gisborne, and invited him to his house. Accordingly he came, and spent an evening describing the route of his proposed telegraph, and the points it was to connect. After he left, Mr. Field took the globe which was standing in the library, and began to turn it over. It was while thus studying the globe that the idea first occurred to him, that the telegraph might be carried further still, and be made to span the Atlantic Ocean. The idea was not original with him, though he was to carry it out. It was indeed new to him, but it had long been a matter of speculation with scientific minds, though their theories had never attracted his attention. But once he had grasped the idea, it took strong hold of his imagination. Had the Newfoundland scheme stood alone, he would never have undertaken it. He cared little about shortening communication with Europe by a day or two, by relays of boats and carrier pigeons. But it was the hope of further and grander results that inspired him to enter on a work of which no man could foresee the end. An enterprise of such proportions that would task to the utmost the science and the engineering skill of the world was not to be rashly undertaken, and before giving a definite reply to Gisborne, Mr. Field determined to apply to the highest authorities in his own country. The project of an Atlantic telegraph involved two problems. Could a cable be stretched across the ocean? And if it were, would it be good for anything to convey messages? The first was a question of mechanical difficulties, requiring a careful survey of the ocean itself, fathoming its depths, finding out the character of its bottom, whether level or rough and volcanic, and all the obstacles that might be found in the winds that agitate the surface above, or the mighty currents that sweep through the waters below. The second problem was purely scientific, involving questions as to the laws of electricity, not then fully understood, and on which the boldest might feel that he was venturing on uncertain ground. Such were the two elements or forces of nature to be encountered, the ocean and the electric current. Could they be controlled by any power of man? The very proposal was enough to stagger the faith even of an enthusiast. Who could lay a bridle on the neck of the sea? 
The attempt seemed as idle as that of Xerxes to bind it with chains. Was it possible to combat the fierceness of the winds and waves, and to stretch one long line from continent to continent? And then, after the work was achieved, would the lightning run along the ocean bed from shore to shore? Such were the questions which had puzzled many an anxious brain, and which now troubled the one who was to undertake the work. To get some light in his perplexity, Mr. Field, the very next morning after his interview with Gisborne, wrote two letters, one to Lieutenant Maury, then at the head of the National Observatory at Washington, on the nautical difficulties of the undertaking, asking if the sea were itself a barrier too great to be overcome, and the other to Professor Morse, inquiring if it would be possible to telegraph over a distance so great as that from Europe to America. The mail soon brought an answer from Lieutenant Maury, which began, Singularly enough, just as I received your letter, I was closing one to the Secretary of the Navy on the same subject. A copy of this he enclosed to Mr. Field, and it is given here. It shows the conclusions at which, even at that early day, scientific men were beginning to arrive. National Observatory, Washington, February twenty second, 1854 Sir, the United States Brig Dolphin, Lieutenant Commanding O. H. Berryman, was employed last summer upon a special service connected with the researches that are carried on at this office concerning the winds and currents of the sea. Her observations were confined principally to that part of the ocean which the merchantmen, as they pass to and fro upon the business of trade between Europe and the United States, use as their great thoroughfare. Lieutenant Berryman availed himself of this opportunity to carry along also a line of deep-sea soundings, from the shores of Newfoundland to those of Ireland. The result is highly interesting in so far as the bottom of the sea is concerned, upon the question of a submarine telegraph across the Atlantic, and I therefore beg leave to make it the subject of a special report. This line of deep-sea soundings seems to be decisive of the question of the practicability of a submarine telegraph between the two continents, in so far as the bottom of the deep sea is concerned. From Newfoundland to Ireland, the distance between the nearest points is about 1,600 miles. Footnote B from Cape Breels, Newfoundland, to Eris Head, Ireland, the distance is 1,611 miles. From Cape Charles, or Cape St. Louis, Labrador, to the same point, the distance is 1,601 miles. End footnote. And the bottom of the sea between the two places is a plateau, which seems to have been placed there especially for the purpose of holding the wires of a submarine telegraph, and of keeping them out of harm's way. It is neither too deep nor too shallow yet it is so deep that the wires but once landed will remain forever beyond the reach of vessels' anchors, icebergs, and drifts of any kind, and so shallow that the wires may be readily lodged upon the bottom. The depth of this plateau is quite regular, gradually increasing from the shores of Newfoundland to the depth of from 1,500 to 2,000 fathoms as you approach the other side. The distance between Ireland and Cape St. Charles, or Cape St. Louis, in Labrador, is somewhat less than the distance from any point of Ireland to the nearest point of Newfoundland. But whether it would be better to lead the wires from Newfoundland or Labrador is not now the question, nor do I pretend to consider the question as to the possibility of finding a time calm enough, the sea smooth enough, a wire long enough, a ship big enough, to lay a coil of wire sixteen hundred miles in length, though I have no fear but that the enterprise and ingenuity of the age, whenever called on with these problems, will be ready with a satisfactory and practical solution of them. I simply address myself at this time to the question, in so far as the bottom of the sea is concerned, and as far as that, the greatest practical difficulties will, I apprehend, be found after reaching soundings at either end of the line, and not in the deep sea. 
a wire laid across from either of the above-named places on this side will pass to the north of the Grand Banks, and rest on that beautiful plateau to which I have alluded, where the waters of the sea appear to be as quiet and as completely at rest as at the bottom of a mill-pond. It is proper that the reason should be stated for the inference that there are no perceptible currents, and no abrading agents at work at the bottom of the sea upon this telegraphic plateau. I derive this inference from a study of a physical fact, which I little deemed, when I sought it, had any such bearings. Lieutenant Berryman brought up with Brooks' deep-sea sounding apparatus specimens of the bottom from this plateau. I sent them to Professor Bailey of West Point for examination under his microscope. This he kindly gave, and that eminent microscopist was quite as much surprised to find, as I was to learn, that all those specimens of deep-sea soundings are filled with microscopic shells. To use his own words, not a particle of sand or gravel exists in them. These little shells, therefore, suggest the fact that there are no currents at the bottom of the sea whence they came. The Brooks's lead found them where they were deposited in their burial place after having lived and died on the surface, and by gradually sinking were lodged on the bottom. Had there been currents at the bottom, these would have swept and abraded and mingled up with these microscopic remains the debris of the bottom of the sea, such as ooze, sand, gravel, and other matter. But not a particle of sand or gravel was found among them. Hence the interference that these depths of the sea are not disturbed either by waves or currents. Consequently, a telegraphic wire once laid there, there it would remain, as completely beyond the reach of accident as it would be if buried in airtight cases. Therefore, so far as the bottom of the deep sea between Newfoundland or the North Cape, at the mouth of the St. Lawrence, and Ireland is concerned, the practicability of a submarine telegraph across the Atlantic is proved. In this view of the subject, and for the purpose of hastening the completion of such a line, I take the liberty of suggesting for your consideration the propriety of an offer from the proper source, of a prize to the company through whose telegraphic wire the first message shall be passed across the Atlantic. I have the honor to be respectfully yours, M. F. Maury, Lieutenant United States Navy, Honorable J. C. Dobbin, Secretary of the Navy. The reply of Professor Morst showed equal interest in the subject, in proof of which he wrote that he would come down to New York to see Mr. Field about it. A few days after he came and saw Mr. Field at his house. This was the beginning of an acquaintance which soon ripened into friendship, and which henceforth united these gentlemen together in this great achievement. Professor Morse, in conversation, entered at length into the laws of electricity, as applied to the business of telegraphing, and concluded by declaring his entire faith in the undertaking as practical, as one that might, could, and would be achieved. Indeed, this faith he had avowed years before. In a letter written as early as August 10, 1843, to John C. Spencer, then Secretary of the Treasury, Professor Morse had detailed the results of certain experiments made in the harbor of New York to show the power of electricity to communicate at great distances, at the close of which he says, in words that now seem prophetic, The practical inference from this law is that a telegraphic communication on the electromagnetic plan may with certainty be established across the Atlantic Ocean. Startling as this may now seem, I am confident the time will come when this project will be realized. It was the good fortune of Mr. Field, at that time and ever since, to have at hand an adviser in whose judgment he had implicit confidence. This was his elder brother, David Dudley Field. They lived side by side on Gramercy Park and were in daily communication. To the prudent counsels, wise judgment, and unfaltering courage of the elder brother, the Atlantic Telegraph is more indebted than the world would ever know. 
for its first impulse and for the spirit which sustained it through long years of discouragement and disaster when its friends were few to this his nearest and best counsellor mr field opened the project which had taken possession of his mind and being strengthened by that maturer judgment he finally resolved that if he could get a sufficient number of capitalists to join him he would embark in an enterprise which beginning with a line to newfoundland involved in the end nothing less than an attempt to link this new world which columbus had discovered to that old world which had been for ages the home of empire and of civilization how the scheme advanced through the next twelve years it will be our province to relate end of chapter two recording by alex c talander www dot net